Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2012, in Salt Lake City, a young homeless man born in Vietnam stabbed a number of white men, purportedly in retribution for the Vietnam War. In a new book-length essay, The Broken Country, Utah poet laureate and University of Utah English professor Paisley Rechtel uses this shocking incident as a springboard for examining the long-term cultural and psychological effects of the Vietnam War. Paisley Rechtel is, uh, has been honored uh, with the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, Guggenheim Fellowship, Fulbright Fellowship, South Korea. She's the author of five poetry collections, two works of nonfiction, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, and Intimate, an American Family Photo Album. And she's recipient of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award for Creative Nonfiction for the Broken Country. And she joins us for the hour. Paisley Rechtel, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. Appreciate you taking time to uh, to be with us. Um, so I want to jump into the this the, the, the shocking crime, um, which is the, the springboard for a discussion of a lot of issues. Uh, and in uh, Chapter 2 here, you say, at first, the outlines of the crime seem to me quite simple. I guess the the, the simple outlines of the uh, the crime are simple. Uh, just tell us tell us what happened. Well, the crime um, unfolded. I was living in Vietnam at the time that I heard about the crime. But essentially, um, Kit Tan Lee walked into uh, the Smith's Marketplace uh, in downtown Salt Lake. It's kind of close to my house, and purchased a knife there, and uh, walked out into the parking lot and began specifically stabbing young white men or men around his age um, while screaming things that made many of the passers-by think that he was acting out in revenge for or in some sort of uh, way about the Vietnam War. Um, Lee himself was, at the time, I think about 34 years old. He was somebody who would have been affected by the war but did not actually live through the war itself, um, because of, by 1975, the American involvement in the war had ended. But um, he came over post-1975 with his family, and so he was um, a refugee, and he was, I think he and his family were very deeply personally affected by the long-term effects of the war and what it did um, to their country and to their family. And so I became fascinated by this crime, um, mostly because I was living in Vietnam at the time, as I said, and because I was also living next door to the Vietnam Military History Museum, and every day I was going to visit this memorial sculpture kind of um, artwork. It's almost impossible to identify it. It was a series of planes that had been shot down both in the French and uh, what they call the American War, what we call the Vietnam War. And they were layered together in this enormous kind of sculpture, kind of um, art piece. And it struck me because, you know, usually when you look at memorials for war, you look at representational images. You don't actually look at war's material itself. And so I was fascinated by the idea of showcasing war's sort of terrible material, almost sublime kinds of effects, and how it had all of these different emotional resonances. It was both angry, and it was elegiac, and it was it was sad, and um, I just kept trying to process that, and that's when I'd heard about the crime via Facebook. One of the people who had stabbed was actually a student at the um, University of Utah in the English department where I teach. And uh, the the first chapter is that you uh, you uh, write it uh, disjointed in the way that the people must have experienced it. So you know, people have to read the book to uh, to experience that. Um, so tell us a little bit more about this uh, memorial, this 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 monument that had such an effect on you. Describe it if you would. 
Well, it's it's really hard to describe in some respects. I ended up writing both a poem and, like I said, in some ways, this book about it. <clears throat> it's uh, it's about the size of two Humvees that are stacked um, up on top of each other. And it's basically, like I said, these different planes from uh, American and French planes that have been shot down. And they've been salvaged and stacked up in this and heaped, essentially, into this pile to resemble what looked almost like a cross if you stand very far back. Um, there's also a very large black-and-white photograph of a young female um, Viet Cong fighter uh, clearly dragging a piece of the plane um, with some rope down the beach. And it's meant to be, I think, like all war memorials really are, sort of a combination of art and nationalist propaganda. I mean, I think it's clear that the the piece is trying to argue that you know, even in, in a small country, even even the smallest, youngest <clears throat> female from this country can take down one of the two of the greatest um, uh, at that time military powers on earth. And so it was meant to be read like that. But one of the things that really struck me about it was how, um, when I looked at it, I became very aware that each each piece of that plane was a death. It was a death from the air, and it was a death on the ground. And I was really moved and horrified by that. Um, I'm the daughter of a non-combat uh, veteran of Vietnam, and my uncle, um, who is Asian-American, fought in Vietnam and um, received the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for his service in Vietnam. And so Vietnam was something I had kind of grown up around, but no one ever really spoke about it. No one wanted to talk about it, um, especially my uncle. And though he himself was not traumatized in, in ways that we might imagine, that uh, PTSD works, that's not to say that the war didn't have a deep and long-lasting effect on him and our family, and I think that was carried through in some of the silences. So I think part of being fascinated by that memorial was thinking about what what does it mean when we say war is over? What does that mean to the families um, that return from war, either as combatants or as refugees or as victims, people who are repatriating, people who are fleeing? And I think that um, on the one hand, we might want to look at Lee's crime as simplistic. He's homeless. He had problems with drug and alcohol abuse. He had a psychotic break. And these are all true things. But that's also not necessarily the whole story. One of the questions you have to ask is, how did he come to have these problems? How is it that he became somebody who was marginalized? And I think we do have to go back to the war as part of and think about um, so many of these stories as part of that kind of strange wreckage that remains. And he, he shouted uh, something like, you killed my people, right? That's what he was shouting? Yeah. He uh, was shouting, you killed my people, you should all die. He shouted some um, expletives, um, and he, he said, you know, you're all racists, you should all die. And in fact, one of the things that I found interesting about the crime was that um, there were many people at the Smith's parking lot. There were women, um, there were people of color. And in fact, one Asian-American man said that uh, Leah initially lunged towards him, looked at him, looked him full in the face, and then turned away and went after white men. So he was, it did seem that he was specifically motivated to try to fight um, white men. Uh, and I think that that also is a telling kind of um, fact about the crime, which is that, you know, how is it that Lee is acting out, um, and we'll never entirely know, but how is he acting out, you know, not only to reenact a war, but also working out sort of angers and aggressions about sort of a symbol of assimilation that he himself could never be. Um, 
the white uh, American male that is held out as the figure of of the truly assimilated personality. And somebody who comes to the country and is 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 assimilated and not assimilated in certain ways to feel perpetually an outsider, to go and attack the thing that represents what you cannot quite have, and is also the thing against which you're always set, um, historically and in the media. I, I, I thought that was quite interesting. Now, part of what you're uh, investigating here is intergenerational trauma, right? The effects of, of trauma on, on multiple generations. Um, I, I want to, before we get into that and, and the refugee experience, um, and I think we don't, we don't, I was remembering as I was reading your book, um, that uh, the war continued after we left. You know, the war, <laughs> Vietnamese were involved in war for many years after that. Um, but I want to have you explore a little bit uh, something you said. Do we, you say, we, we, as Americans, we like to say things are over. And this has resonance not only to the subject at hand uh, today, but, you know, the effects of slavery or the whole argument over the, the, the Civil War monuments. We, we like to say, okay, it's not our generation. We didn't do that. It's, it should be over. Yeah. I mean, I thought that what was fascinating to me, the more I studied this crime and the more um, I was studying about the Vietnam War and the long-term effects of it, is that uh, I'm the product of an American education system, and I didn't realize how much the war had not ended um, in the Southeast Asian region. I really did not understand that um, because, you know, taught from an American perspective, 1975, April 1975 happens, we pull out, the war is over. And also the idea of as soon as we start, you know, letting in basically almost a million refugees from the Southeast Asian region, uh, we think, well, we've, we've sort of paid our debts. I think that that's kind of um, the the national feeling. And I remember where I was going to school in Seattle, there were a number of young Vietnamese um, children who had been basically adopted or fostered and were taken to Seattle. And um, people did sort of did and didn't understand why they were in school with us. Um, and these were, you know, kids who were basically kind of flung into the Seattle public school system um, with very little uh, kind of background or pe- preparation for them. So it must have been really really quite startling for them at the very least. But um, as Americans, we, we are amnesiacs. We like that. There's a, you know, I thought it was very funny after Obama was elected and Stephen Colbert was on and did a joke, and he said, now that we've elected a black man as president, racism is over. And it was a joke, but it's sort of not a joke. I think that that's the way we tend to approach major historical traumas. We have a, sen- uh, a feeling that, well, okay, as soon as the war ends or as soon as um, a civil rights legislation is passed that we can all move forward, and we pride ourselves and we push ourselves towards forgetting. And I think that's one one of the reasons we push forgetting is because it's a very powerful tool for assimilation. The idea is that as long as people can become American as possible, can enter into mainstream society as quickly as possible, um, that 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 somehow heals the past. And I think. You know, there are good sides and bad sides to that. One is that it it tries to be inclusive. It tries to imagine that, you know, the thing about being American is that it it doesn't have to be an ethnicity. It doesn't have to be a race. It doesn't have to be a gender. Um, You know, you can choose to be American. At the same time, however, the reality is that, you know, that desire is actually not necessarily true because, you know, you're always held out this example of what it means to be American, and it does still hover around ideas of being 
white and male and successful financially um, and Christian. And I think this is a story that has haunted my family. Um, I'm biracial. Half my family is Chinese-American. We're on the other side of my family. We're Norwegian-Americans and a mix thereof. You know, I, I'm, I'm the grandchildren of immigrants. And uh, the sim- story of being assimilated is one that affects both sides of my family. And on both sides of my family, that sense of forget where you came from, forget what it is that, you know, might make you feel like you don't belong here in service to being part of America. And that just doesn't work. And I think we, you know, what's happened in Charlottesville and the arguments still around memorials reminds us of that. We can put up as many statues as we want. We can have as many happy visuals of integration and assimilation that we want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has um, feels good about that history and feels like that history has been resolved for them. There are long-lasting uh, economic and genetic effects of trauma. So if forgetting doesn't work, and we we continue to try that, if that doesn't work, then then what what does? What would? That's the question, and I wish I, I wish I had the answer. I mean, I think when I looked at um, how the Vietnamese refugees tended to be um, relocated in the United States, one of the first things that I noticed that the U.S. did was specifically choose places like Salt Lake City or Provo or Ogden um, or small towns in Texas or smaller towns, um, you know, near in, in, in areas that don't have a high Asian population. And one of the reasons behind that was they didn't want to create ethnic enclaves. And there's, like I said, something good about that, which is they wanted people to find their way and be as American as possible, as quickly as possible. But on the other hand, you have to imagine how disorienting that experience would be. You move to a place where you don't know the language, you know very few of the customs, and no one looks like you, and no one's eating the foods that you eat, and you're sending your kids, if they're still with you, to schools in which they are the only people like themselves and even other Asians that might be there don't speak Vietnamese. One of the first things that I would say is that since we are living through another global refugee crisis, the world's worst, basically, um, you know, to think about whether it's worth trying to disorient people. What, what is, <laughs> why not allow people to go and find the communities um, that make them feel comfortable? Um, the other thing that I noticed was that at the time that we were relocating so many refugees, we didn't have language training, we didn't understand the wild differences in culture, and the other, you know, major uh, economic problems was that, you know, we hadn't planned for that. And we can be much more prepared at this moment. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, we can learn from that refugee crisis. We can certainly understand that there's going to be a lot more need for mental health services. There's going to be a lot more need for language training. And instead of saying you get four months of support and then you have to figure it out yourself, think about this as, you know, a year-to-year process. So it can be a much more involved process, and it's potentially much more expensive. But long-term, I think, um, you'll be paid back uh, quite quite dramatically because they're starting to find out what's happening with Syrian refugees um, and other refugees that have been um, relocated after the wars in the Middle East. And they're finding that, yeah, um, over time, you know, those are great benefits. The more you spend on repatriating people and helping them out, the more likely they're going to be at being successful. And the the central concern, as you you say, is assimilation. It's it's a concern, it's a fear, it's a hope. 
um, it's 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 why the policy of uh, sending uh, you know the Vietnamese refugees to very white uh, communities. Um, uh, what uh, and, uh, and the current in the Trump administration, their response is uh, we have these fears not only about assimilation but uh, about potential violence, and so let's just not bring them in. Yeah, I was really nervous writing this book when I realized what was going to start happening in the country. And when when the book came out, it it pretty much came out um, in September, and uh, my biggest fear was that this could easily become a book that is used by um, people to say, well, this is exactly why we should why we should close the borders and why we should refuse to have immigrants and refugees, um, because look, um, they can commit crimes. And that is true. It is always possible that someone can commit a crime. Um, and in this case, statistics are important to go back to. The number of um, crimes committed by refugees and immigrants is extremely low. Um, and in fact, in places where they have communities, there's been study after study about this, in communities that have very high immigrant um, populations, very large immigrant populations, uh, crime tends to be much lower than in native-born populations. Now, you know, you can say this as much as you want, and people will believe what they want or not. Um, but I think what's at stake is this fantasy I think we have as Americans right now, and maybe we've always held it, but I think right now we, we're we indulging in it more than, than, than usual. And it's the fantasy of perfect protection, the sort of Rambo justice where the individual who has, can take care of himself and whip out his gun and, and protect himself and protect everyone around him. And, and um, the idea that somehow we can create laws, we can create perfect societies in which, you know, violence never occurs. And, you know, that's a dream that I think many of us have for good reasons, but it's not also terribly realistic, and it's certainly not a way to build up an international policy, an immigration policy, or a social policy, because the only way that you can make sure that violence and crimes never happen is to create an incredible police state, and none of us None of us wants that, and none of us could survive that, I think. Um, I think the other thing that you have to remember with you know, these kinds of crimes is that, to a certain extent, we might want to look at this as a crime because you know, Lee was a refugee. But if you look at his history, you could also say this isn't a failure of how we let in the wrong people, quote-unquote, but this is a failure of our mental health system, and the reason that that mental health system has been failing is because we've been financially gutting it for the last 30 years, and after 2008, we gutted it even further. Um, And so we could look at this as um, not a failure of immigration, but a failure of our own health care system as well. We've, you know, he showed up in the system many times prior to... um, to the stabbing. Uh, and uh, another question we might have is how is it that we haven't helped police or how is it that we force police and prison systems to become essentially um, mental health guardians and the first treatment and first responders to mental health crises when we, when we got these kinds of um, mental health programs. That's another story that we can come out of. So anyone who wants to look at this crime and say this is about the problem with immigrants and refugees I would say to go and look at it again and look at other things that basically contributed to this crime. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Paisley Rectal. She's Utah's Poet Laureate. She's Professor of English at University of Utah and author most recently of The Broken Country. Subtitle is On Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. Just before we go to break, I want to alert you that, um, as you know, President Trump's in town uh, in, in Utah today. In town, I guess, if you're in Salt Lake City. And uh, he's uh, set to announce, uh, we think, uh, big reductions to Bears Ears and National, uh, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments tomorrow. We'll focus on that on the program. We'll open the phone lines for your reaction to that. Um, more with Paisley Rectal following this break. You wouldn't know it gazing up at the starry sky, but above our heads there's a floating junkyard of space debris. The leftover pieces from defunct satellites and decades of space missions are still up there, circling our planet and creating a hazard for functioning satellites. A collision with even a small piece of debris could destroy a satellite and create additional debris. Aerospace engineering researchers at USU are joining the global effort to keep a closer watch on space junk. They recently constructed a telescope near Bear Lake that tracks space debris and gathers data about its position and velocity. The data will help researchers improve the theories and technologies used to monitor orbital debris. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in mechanical and aerospace engineering. More at engineering.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2012, in Salt Lake City, a young homeless man born in Vietnam stabbed a number of white men, purportedly in retribution for the Vietnam War. In a new book-length essay, The Broken Country, Utah Poet Laureate and University of Utah English professor Paisley Rectal uses this shocking incident as a springboard for examining the long-term cultural and psychological effects of the Vietnam War. Paisley Rectal, uh, when she learned of this uh, incident, uh, was an interesting place. Um, she was in uh, Hanoi, uh, in uh, in uh, Vietnam, and uh, a, a memorial there in Hanoi had a big effect on her. This is a, a large uh, sculpture made out of plane wreckage, and uh, in front of it, a, a large black and white photo of a uh, teenage girl, I guess, uh, a Vietnamese fighter uh, who's uh, dragging uh, some some wreckage of a plane. Um, so, so first of all, in, in this segment, to Paisley Rectal, uh, what were you doing in in Ho- Hanoi? Yeah, I had won a wonderful fellowship called the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Fellowship, and it requires that you live outside of North America for one year, which I was very happy to do, just to travel around, and they give you a stipend. And um, I had spent a lot of time in Asia. I'd lived in Japan, and I'd lived in South Korea, and I'd visited China a number of times, but I'd never spent any time in um, Southeast Asia. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to Hanoi. And so I spent six months there. I had spent six months prior to that in Paris. And uh, I thought, well, I'll go to Hanoi. And I was um, quite surprised about you know my experience in Hanoi because I think, uh, it, again, it was not that I was at all interested in thinking about the Vietnam War. Um, and in fact, for a while, I think that that's why I had a lot of friends who were Vietnamese who felt kind of comfortable <laughs> talking to me because unlike a lot of Americans, I wasn't there on what they would call the trauma tour. Um, and yet, the more I was living there and traveling around Southeast Asia, I couldn't help but notice, and I couldn't help but be engaged by all of the different memorials and museums 
um, uh, to war. And we talked prior to this, um, the first part of the show, about how we forget about the long-term effects of the Vietnam War after the you know, United States pulled out. But of course, you know, there's the story of the Khmer Rouge. It's the story of um, fighting with Cambodia. It's the story of um, you know refugees all across Southeast Asia fleeing so much um, continual dev- devastation. And so I was very moved by that. And uh, I think that that also really focused me in on this story when I heard about it. I want to talk about the the, the refugees. Uh, we, I think we forget we're safe and comfortable, and we forget there's a reason why people, you know, uh, usually don't leave their homes voluntarily. They're refugees. There's a reason for that. I want to get into that. You'd write about this in the book. But first of all, I'm interested in your 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 continuing reactions over time uh, to this monument. It had a big effect on you. This in Hanoi. Um, maybe you could take me through that. What, what was your initial reaction or reactions, and then how did that change over time? My initial reaction was actually anger when I saw it. And because, as I said, the, the statue represented death, um, a death on the ground, but also a death in the air. And it is one thing, as I said before, to represent war in terms of art, another thing to actually use the material of war, the actual wreckage of war. Um, it brought home to me the fact that I was not just looking at um, a, a memory of war or a fantastical projection of what we imagined that war was fought. I was looking at somebody who died or somebody who was captured. Basically, I was looking at someone's pain. And um, as somebody who is not meant to be uh, in some ways, the ideal audience for the sculpture, I felt, you know, furious and affronted because, you know, my uh, my uncle had fought and nearly died there, um, and I was aware of that. I was aware of suddenly my historical, my national position. But the more I looked at it, the more it changed, um, and it struck me that, of course, this is a death on the ground. This is um, a Vietnamese soldier who died. These are civilians who died as well. And I started to think that as much as the piece of art was meant to be propaganda, as all memorials, war memorials tend to be, in some ways it had escaped being merely a piece of propaganda and had moved into something that ended up being, I would call, almost an accidental double elegy. Because you couldn't look at these planes without thinking of all of the people who died. And that's very unusual. Like when we go to the memorials that, say, we erect, we tend to focus in on our dead. That's what, what's, what we're supposed to do. That's how you're supposed to elegize um, the soldiers. You know, memorials are supposed to teach us about who fought, who died, why, and ultimately we should mourn the people who died because they represent the values that our culture themselves, you know, itself wants to represent. But you rarely see a memorial that wants to remind you, uh, we killed other people, too. And so when you come across those um, moments, it, it is very arresting. And I felt that at some level, um, the sculpture had done something that, you know, even though it was bad, bad art, it had done something that good art strives to do, which is to be expansive, and it strives to be empathetic, and it strives to be um, inclusive, and I talk about, there's a, a French philosopher I mentioned at the end of the book, Paul Ricoeur, who talks about the idea of ethical memory around war. And he said one of the problems with the ways that we talk about war in history and how we create histories around war is that 
we focus on very particular bodies, people who fought, uh, people who won, people who are literate, people who are fairly economically well-off, um, but we don't talk about the other people. We don't talk about the civilians or the children or the women who are raped. We don't talk about the disabled or those who aren't literate, the people who can't enter the historical record. And an ethical memory of war, he argues, is one that would take in as many combatants and participants and victims as possible. And it's both this beautiful um, elegiac urge, and it's also an impossibility, because to truly encapsulate everybody, you have to ask, well, where does war begin and end, too? Because when I was doing research for the book, the other thing I noticed is that if we think about trauma as both a cultural wound but also a physical genetic wound, because now we're finding out it is, we're talking about the grandchildren um, and the great-grandchildren, potentially, of people who have fought or participated in or experienced war at some level. So where does that really end? How, you know, how, how, how long can this memory extend to? And that's both terrifying and... Um, I guess it's just terrifying in a way. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was I was wondering where you were going to go with that, because I was wondering what... Yeah, <laughs> I think it's yeah. only terrifying. I guess it's only terrifying. Uh, now, uh, you know, science is doing investigation into this. I wonder if you could expand on that. Um, not only cultural uh, effects of, of trauma on, on a people and on a family, on a you know, but genetic. Yeah, so I talk about... Um, trauma is being both a physical and a cultural wound. And um, there's epigenetic or you know, transgenerational or intergenerational trauma. There's, these terms get used kind of interchangeably. And this kind of trauma is basically the genetic, um, genetically inherited trauma. And there's study after study, most that started with mice and this nature study, that talk about how um, essentially... Uh, depending on if it's a male or a female RNA, <laughs> I think I'm getting this wrong now, um, you, can, you can inherit the PTSD of your mother um, or your father, essentially. And this has long-lasting effects. Um, so, for instance, PTSD, when we talk about that, that, that includes a variety of symptoms. It includes um, problems with memory, integrating memory, uh, aggression. It includes somatic uh, problems such as aches, pains, you know, problems with, you know, your body essentially, drug and alcohol addiction, um, and depression and anxiety, high startle reflex, you know, all sorts of, you know, terrible and sometimes crippling um, effects. And so this can be inherited um, throughout the generations. They've done studies on people from, you know, that have survived the Holocaust and their families, um, people who have survived um, famines and um, American Indians who have survived another kind of genocide as well. And they're finding that, yes, this, this seems to go down the generations. And what's also disturbing is that it seems that people who have inherited trauma tend to also seem to have an elevated risk of being re-traumatized in some other way. So, for instance, um, somebody who has um, got PTSD has a tendency, for whatever reason, not a tendency or a has an elevated chance of being in another traumatic incident, such as um, a violent attack, rape, um, something like that. And so um, they've also noticed that we're doing research on the children of veterans of Vietnam um, the, who fought in war, that they too also have elevated rates of PTSD. Now, this doesn't mean universal, so it doesn't mean that every person who has experienced war necessarily has PTSD, and it certainly doesn't mean that every refugee or every veteran has PTSD. 
but we're talking about elevated rates. So um, if that's the case, and that seems to be the case for Vietnamese Americans, that there's an elevated rate. It's not universal, but it is elevated. And when you go country to country where the diaspora settled, that, um, that seems to be the same sort of pattern. So you have to take that into consideration. Um, cultural trauma is slightly different. Cultural trauma is where it gets sticky and a little bit frightening um, <laughs> in a different way. So if you can genetically inherit trauma, culturally we also can inherit trauma through the stories, the songs, the movies, the films and television programs, whatever that we produce that re endlessly replay the traumas of war. So a lot of people I talked to did a lot of oral histories for this book. A lot of the people I talked to talked about the traumatizing effects of hearing their families talk about war. Um, and this, these stories that seem to have no beginning, no ending, um, that involved all sorts of terrible things, rape and murder, cannibalism, um, being lost at sea, you know, just awful losses. And sometimes these stories would filter into their bedrooms at night or be, you know, the parents would try to suppress the stories but let certain details um, escape. And, and this was something that people felt like they were still living with. They were living with the idea that violence could erupt at any kind of time. And so even if they were not necessarily genetically marked by trauma, in a way that they were culturally shaped by their parents and their grandparents' experiences of war, they were culturally shaped to experience and understand and even um, inhabit the framework of a kind of traumatic memory. I wonder if you could talk about the, uh, the trauma that refugees did experience. Uh, we talked early in the program about how the fact that, that uh, in school we learned that, uh, you know, around 1975, Americans uh, pulled out, and uh, that's, you know, the end. But uh, tell us briefly what happened after that, and then some of the refugee experiences, which are very traumatic. Well, I mean, essentially the war continued on um, in 1975 after we left, um, that just meant that Vietnam went a war, just continued to rage um, at war. Uh, they went to war with the Khmer Rouge. They were constant, they, and there was um, also the uh, ways in which there was a sort of purge. Anyone who is um, South Vietnamese or a South Vietnamese sympathizer, someone who, anyone who had had uh, military uh, family members who were military, um, their children uh, were rounded up. Um, sometimes, they, if they could find the officers themselves. They were rounded up and put into re-education camps. People were tortured, um, held for years. Um, and, you know, and, and so there's three waves of Vietnamese refugees post-1975. The very first wave were the relatively lucky ones. They had um, the strongest ties to the U.S. government or the embassy. They tended to be uh, wealthier, better, better educated. They probably had English as one of their languages within the family. They, had, um, they, were, they were the first out, essentially, of the country. The second and the third waves, the ones that we call the boat people, these are the ones that um, comprised some of the people who had been taken into re-education camps, uh, rounded up, um, harassed, uh, persecuted in many ways. And um, they were also children that uh, American soldiers basically fathered and left in the country as well. Um, they were poor people as well, um, people who were less educated, the Hmong, um, who were fleeing essentially the effects of the Khmer Rouge um, and the genocide there. Um, so we have, we have a really amazing mix, I think, uh, and we forget about that, a huge mix of different types of people who came over. It wasn't just 
one type of refugee. They had wildly different education levels, wildly different sort of socioeconomic um, statuses, and different languages in, in many cases, and different educational experiences. And yet we treated them kind of all the same. But what also happened is that the people who escaped by boat, we forget this, and I certainly didn't know this, um, they weren't just escaping by boat and they got here <laughs> in a couple of weeks. I mean, they were escaping by boat to other places in the Southeast Asian region and sometimes held in refugee camps for up to a year. To get the refugees over, many of the families were broken up. Children were sent to strangers' homes um, in a different state than their parents finally got what got to. Um, brothers and sisters wouldn't see each other for, you know, a decade. Um, so families were not necessarily kept together. Um, and it was also very difficult to get out of those camps. You had to provide um, a lot of information. You had to prove that you had a reason to come to the U.S. Um, and uh, and finding homes, um, host families was quite difficult. So some people like would languish there for years. Some people were fortunate and got out after a month. Um, and the experience of trying to even get to those refugee camps was terrifying. A lot of these uh, people were put into boats that were meant to try to evade uh, naval detection because lots of countries did not want hordes of refugees coming to their shores, right? Because at, at the height of the refugee crisis, there were about 40,000 people a month arriving on the shores of like the Philippines um, or Malaysia. And it was just something that they couldn't handle. They really could not figure out how to take care of all of these people. So you've got people in tiny ships that were not, boats basically, that are not meant to survive that kind of sea voyage. Um, and they are driven off a lot of times by the Coast Guard of the different countries they're trying to get to. Pirates descend on many of these boats, and knowing that these are vulnerable people, taking you know whatever they can from them, um, raping and killing, in many cases, uh, boats, uh, people on these boats. Um, the International Refugee Commission estimates that though about a million people were relocated, probably around 250,000 more were lost at sea. No one knows what happened to them, so they don't even know exactly how many people fled. And so when we think about the refugee experience, we can't, I mean, I can't stress enough, it's not just that something bad happened in their country and then they came here. It was, there was a continual sense of disorientation and unsettlement and a sense of um, also loss that we have to remind ourselves, it's not that they just lost a country, that the country that they lost is truly gone. The geographical landmass of Vietnam remains, but the country that they left, South Vietnam, has been politically erased. And the place that they end up you know, thinking is their homeland is something that can only be recaptured through their parents' memories. And I think that that is something also to kind of keep in mind where we think about the kind of disorientation of leaving one place and coming to another, the place that they left can never be returned to, ever. Well, those narratives are powerful, right? And we all have them uh, as individuals and as families and as uh, cultures. I want you to talk a little bit, you talked earlier a little bit about this, when you expand on this, what what are the narratives that the Vietnamese in America are, are, are constructing or are perpetrating? Well, I think what's fascinating to me about the Vietnamese-American culture now is that it is so rich and it is so diverse. Because, you know, again, when I was saying that there's three different kind of waves of refugees that came across, there are also Vietnamese 
immigrants that came too. So they came from the north. Um, and so even a, a place like Salt Lake City, we have 10,000 Vietnamese Americans living here. Um, it's a very rich sort of melange of uh, people who fought in war, people who did not fought, fight in war, South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese, um, different languages, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and so it's a very vibrant kind of community in, in some ways. It's not uniform. It's not monolithic in any of the ways I think that we would want to depict them as. And I also want to point out that even as we're talking about trauma and um, the, the horrors of this, um, you know, almost every Vietnamese American I spoke to said, I want you to remember that, you know, my family survived and we continue to survive. And the real story is one of resilience, too. I mean, I focus in on trauma and what we consider a deficit-based kind of story because that's a story that Lee presents. And to a certain extent, we don't focus in on that because it doesn't make us feel good as Americans that assimilate Lee, but also a lot of Vietnamese American communities would want to erase Lee as well because he's a figure of a kind of cultural embarrassment. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't represent the best of Vietnamese American society for, in their eyes. Um, and so if we're amnesiacs, they're also amnesiacs. But I think, um, you know, Lee exists, but then also you get people who are wildly successful. The person who just won the Pulitzer Prize last year um, um, for fiction was a Vietnamese-American refugee named Viet Thanh Nguyen. Um, and there's another wonderful writer who's um, probably going to win many awards. Her name is T. Bui, and she wrote a book called, you know, the best we could do. And, you know, she's also extremely successful. We have, you know, Vietnamese Americans in all walks of life doing extremely well. Um, and so you have to remember that story, but you also have to remember that, you know, people like Lee also exist in this community too. So there's kind of no one way to say this is what the Vietnamese community is. It's, it's like any community. It c contains everyone. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll uh, come back with our last segment uh, next with uh, Paisley Rectal. Uh, the book is The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. Uh, programming note, tomorrow we'll uh, open the phone lines for your reactions to uh, President Trump's expected announcements of reductions, big reductions to uh, two national monuments in Utah. President Trump's in Utah for that announcement uh, today. You can react on this program tomorrow. More with Paisley Rectal following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter, and PA Lindsay Humes, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, 753-7880. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and Saturday and Sunday brunch from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Details at CafeIbis.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Our guest uh, today is the poet uh, laureate of Utah, Paisley Rectal, University of Utah English professor, Paisley Rectal. And her latest book is The Broken Country. The subtitle is On Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. Um, I wonder, uh, Paisley Rectal, uh, part of this book, you uh, talk about how Vietnam is uh, portrayed, has been portrayed over time here in American popular uh, culture. You do a bit of a critique. I wonder if you could talk a bit about, about that. That's had a, a big effect, I think, on on how we view Vietnam and the war. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about Vietnam, and as a poet, <laughs> I immediately reacted to it, is that Vietnam for us is a metaphor 
but it's not a like most metaphors it doesn't always have just one meaning it has any you know a meaning from either social um civic disruption to uh, a disastrous war for fought on someone else's shores to um, fleeing refugees i mean it means a whole host of things to so many people and so i was really struck by how it is that that metaphor gets shaped based on how we portray the war and vietnam is one of the most um portrayed wars uh there are over 400 films and tv shows uh about vietnam alone and we return to it continuously um we obsessively sort of replay it and you know there's a way in which um one thing that's very consistent about the, our portrayal of vietnam is how we don't tend to ever tell vietnamese stories um vietnam is a war that happens to largely white americans and if terrible things happen um that is an incent- and and we portray ourselves as acting badly in vietnam in a weird way it's a a way of sort of saying you know we, we can morally rescue ourselves by pointing out how badly we behaved abroad and we can point out basically the ways in which we failed ourselves and our soldiers and um but at the same time it utterly negates any kind of vietnamese presence any kind of vietnamese agency and even when we talk now about vietnamese american success I find it very interesting that oftentimes it's framed through a lens of what America allowed Vietnamese people to achieve. So for instance, a very popular anecdote about um the Vietnamese success in the nail industry, you know, the nail salon industry is usually told by starting with the story of how Tippi Hendren, uh an American film actress went to visit a refugee camp and it was her beautiful glossy nails which inspired then um Vietnamese women to go into becoming uh manicurists. And this is both true, it's accurate that that Tippi Hedren did visit a refugee camp and did help train um some Vietnamese American women, uh, Vietnamese women, but it is not necessarily the reason for the success of Vietnamese uh, American women in um the nail salon industry. Uh but but by framing it that way, by mediating it that way, again we sort of downplay Vietnamese agency. I talk about watching Platoon when I was in school and younger and how I was horrified by the violence, but you know when the violence is portrayed against um these Vietnamese villagers, they don't get to say anything. All they do is scream um and die. And I mean that sounds like a terrible character, but it's it's kind of true if you look at the the films that we have. And so um in in many ways our portrayal of the Vietnam War continues to silence and negate half of the stories that um we need to remember about the Vietnam War because these people became um American citizens many of them um these people had their own perspectives of the war and even now when we're looking at the Ken Burns documentary that just came out which has made attempts to interview Vietnamese soldiers um and they did you know a better job of that but it's still notable how little screen time they gave to the Vietnamese soldiers um and the Vietnamese perspective of what that war meant when you were in hanoi and and you traveled to other places in vietnam when you were there you said earlier in the program that the, the, the you know they rolled their eyes if it's just another american doing trauma tourism 
uh, did did they want to talk about the war in any way, shape, or form, or, or did they just want to forget? I think, I mean, that's a good question because I wasn't there long enough to be good enough friends, I think, with people that, that they would have opened up in certain ways. Um, I think largely they were just exhausted by the portrayal of their country, which they understood because, I mean, they... They, they could they could see how the rest of the world has viewed them or, or still sees them. And when we talk about Vietnam, we basically have made a nation a metaphor for war, at least globally. But that's not, of course, how the Vietnamese see it. I mean, the Vietnamese see it as, this is our home, this is our country. And why should we be continually associated with a war that, you know, from specific people's perspectives, they won. Um, and I, I think that the exhaustion about wanting not to be seen as a perpetual war-torn country is that, again, it's to do that, to, to make Vietnam a metaphor simply for that, suppresses a lot of the ways in which Vietnam is a very thriving, modern economy that is growing. Um, and, you know, it, it's a country that we like to, rather like in our media portrayals, uh, make passive and less active and, and voiceless in a way. It's a way of making them seem kind of almost pre-modern. They, they have not changed since the war in our imagination. So I think part of it is a rejection of that. Um, and then part of it is also the sort of discomfort of talking about something that all of us know does sort of personally affect us at some level. I mean, if I have family members, they have family members that also were involved in that war. And and it's, you know, I've, I've been in other countries where um, the question of trying to be seen as fully human <laughs> is, is really important. And I don't think that that's one of the things that American media historically has been good at doing. They have not portrayed Vietnamese and the Vietnamese Americans as fully human. Um, and I think so long as we talk about the war, we end up back in those kinds of mediated stereotypes of each other. Uh, and and no one's satisfied with that. We just have about two minutes left, so we'll have to be brief on this subject. I was I was fascinating. Found it very interesting. Near the end of your book, you juxtapose this memorial in Hanoi that we've been talking about with a visit in the '80s, I believe it was, to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington D.C. I think on that occasion, your uncle who had fought in the war was was there. Um, and and you talk about touch. You, in Hanoi Memorial, you, you never brought yourself to, or I don't know, never thought of touching the memorial. Then you talk about your your uncle touching a, a name on on the, on the memorial in Washington. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was so amazing about Maya Lin's memorial is that it puts you in intimate contact with those names. And in fact, you know, that's one of the first things people do is they find the name of the loved one and they rub that name into a piece of paper, and they can carry it with them. You can actually have physical contact with the memorial that you can't in so many other war memorials. And what's interesting to me about the memorial in Hanoi that I visited is that there were no gates around it, there were no ropes around it. I could have gone up and touched any part of it, but I felt that that would have been a violation. Um, and I don't even know why myself, probably because I had associated each of those plane parts with the idea of death. And I didn't, I didn't want to disturb it in that kind of way. But both memorials, again, ask for a kind of material reckoning with our memories about war. They ask us to think about war as not something that's distant, but something that's deeply attached to us 
that we are connected to, whether in our bloodstreams or in our, our families' very bodies and minds. Um, we tend to think of history in this bloodless way, but I think it's living and it's breathing, and I think it's something that when we say a war is over, we're absolutely trying not to pay attention to a real physical presence that still, I think, moves around and among us. Paisley Rectal is Utah Poet Laureate and Professor of English at University of Utah. The latest book is The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of uh, Vietnam. Uh, this book won uh, the latest prize from the Associated Writers of uh, and Writing Programs uh, Award for Creative Nonfiction. And it's been a pleasure, Paisley Rectal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll alert you that the phone lines will be open tomorrow on the program, and uh, we'll get your reactions to the expected uh, big reductions in uh, Bears and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. That announcement's coming today in Utah from uh, President Trump. We'll open the phone lines for you tomorrow. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners and Moab Area Travel Council, whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grand County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. Next time on Philosophy Talk, midlife and meaning. 50 is now the new 40. That means we've all got 10 more years in which to have ourselves a spectacular midlife crisis. No problem, Josh. Philosophy will help us get out of that. Philosophy? That's exactly what got us into it. Either way, philosophy can help us turn a crisis into a whole new way of living. Hmm. Well, I'm going to stick to buying a new Tesla. Midlife and meaning. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.